Good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Today is February 21st, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here. Our class tonight is an overview of the one year of war in Ukraine, uh, the anniversary of which is coming up this Friday. Uh, so I'm really glad to have you all here. This is a very important class, uh, very critical for us to understand and look back on. So, yeah, today is... Uh the anniversary, the first anniversary of the recognition of the two people's republic, Lugansk and Donetsk by President Putin was February 21st, okay? And uh, it was done on a um, Duma law proposition that was introduced by the Russian Communist Party. So keep that in mind. We communists are at the origin of Z, as far as Russia is concerned. Thank you. All right, thank you, comrade. All right, like we said, our class is on an overview of one year of war in Ukraine. Okay, so we're gonna read a timeline of events in the last year of the war in Ukraine. And we're gonna read Seymour Hersh, article on the US sabotage of the North Stream 2. It is actually the North Stream 1 and North Stream 2. Um, Biden bombed both of them. And we're gonna look at statistics and maps about the war to better understand how the conflict is going for both sides. All right, our first section is on the timeline. This is just the pre-conflict to the Nord Stream 2 sabotage. Okay, so on February 10th, 2007, Vladimir Putin delivered a famous speech at the Munich Security Conference. That conference happens every year. It just happened uh, last week on Friday or so of this year. Here is piece of that speech which decried NATO expansion. Адаптированный договор об обычных вооруженных силах в Европе был подписан в 1999 году. Он учитывал новую геополитическую реальность – ликвидацию Варшавского блока. С тех пор прошло 7 лет, и только четыре государства ратифицировали этот документ, включая Российскую Федерацию. Страны НАТО открыто заявили, что не ратифицируют договор, включая положение о фланговых ограничениях, о размещении на флангах определенного количества вооруженных сил, до тех пор, пока Россия не выведет свои базы из Грузии и Молдавии. Из Грузии наши войска выводятся, причем даже в ускоренном порядке. Эти проблемы мы с нашими грузинскими коллегами решили, и это всем известно. В Молдавии остается группировка в полторы тысячи военнослужащих, которые выполняют миротворческие функции и охраняют склады с боеприпасами, оставшиеся со времен СССР. И мы с господином Саланой обсуждаем постоянно этот вопрос. Он знает нашу позицию. Мы готовы и дальше работать по этому направлению. Но что же происходит в это же самое время? А в это самое время в Болгарии и Румынии появляются так называемые легкие американские передовые базы по 5000 штыков каждый. Получается, что НАТО выдвигает свои передовые силы к нашим государственным границам. А мы, строго выполняя договор, никак не реагируем на эти действия. 
Думаю, очевидно, процесс натовского расширения не имеет никакого отношения к модернизации самого Альянса или к обеспечению безопасности в Европе. Наоборот, это серьезно провоцирующий фактор, снижающий уровень взаимного доверия. И у нас есть справедливое право откровенно спросить, против кого это расширение. И что стало с теми заверениями, которые давались западными партнерами после распуска Варшавского договора? Где теперь эти заявления? О них даже никто не помнит. Но я позволю себе напомнить в этой аудитории. Хотел бы привести цитату из выступления генерального секретаря НАТО, господина Вернера, в Брюсселе 17 мая 90 -го года. Он тогда сказал, сам факт, что мы готовы не размещать войска НАТО за пределами территории ФРГ, дает Советскому Союзу твердые гарантии безопасности. Где эти гарантии? Viktor Yanukovych wins the presidency of Ukraine and it shares joining NATO and he works closer with Russia. In other words, he became not so friendly with NATO at all and with EU, but he became friendly with Russia. That was his mortal sin, as you're going to see. Okay, 2013-2014. Fascist Euromaidan coup takes place in Ukraine. Yanukovych is ousted. The fascist US chosen regime takes power. The Russian Federation annexes Crimea after a referendum to join wins. Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic are founded in the Donbass region. From 2014 till now, the war in the Donbass as fascist Ukraine carries out brutal war against the people of the DPR and LPR. This went on for eight years without Russian intervention. And I want to point out over on the side, we have a picture from the Euromaidan of the House of Trade Unions in Kiev, Ukraine, which was on fire during that, uh, just to go ahead and kind of show uh, their, their fascism. Yeah, that happens on May 2nd, 2014, uh, slightly after the two People's Republic were proclaimed. In uh, September 24th, 2020, Uh, the new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, approved Ukraine's new national security strategy, quote, which provides for the development of distinctive partnership with NATO with the aim of membership in NATO. February 21st, 2021. One year ago today, comrades, Russian Defense Ministry announced the deployment of 3,000 paratroopers the border for military exercises. Oh, I'm sorry, that's two years uh, from, from today. Never mind. Uh, March 16th, 2021, NATO military exercise Defender Europe 2021 takes place as 28,000 troops from 27 nations conduct operations in 30 training areas in 12 countries. You got a map right there. You can see it. Yeah, and I want to just go ahead before I go to this next slide and point out that there's a couple of non-NATO countries in here which are interesting to note that they participated in this. You have Georgia, uh, you have Moldova, of course you have Ukraine, uh, so it's very 
interesting to note that they went ahead and helped out in that measure. And, and I can go ahead and give anybody a, a link to this sort of picture if they want it. Okay. March, April 2021. Unofficially reported Russian buildup on border with Ukraine. April 14, 15th. So a naval confrontation between Ukrainian forces and Russian KGB forces in the Sea of Azov. The Sea of Azov is right uh, above the, the small little body of water that's right above the Black Sea by, um, by Mariupol and Rostov, you know. April 22nd, 2021, the Russian Minister of Defense, Sergei Shogu, announced a drawdown of military exercises and multiple divisions returned to their bases. However, military equipment is left there. November 21 to January 22, more reports again of Russian military buildup near the border with Ukraine. And these are some images, uh, some alleged images of the Russian buildup near the border with Ukraine in April of 2021. We'll go ahead and stop for our first round of questions and comments now. Thank you. Real quick, um, sort of not related to class, but related to why there is a war. I want to make it explicitly clear that there is a Nazi problem. War is bad. Yes. But this is not a war of aggression. Ukraine itself has called the, the states of Donbass a, a, a terrorist action. So I just want to remind everybody for when this goes online that Nazis are bad. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, thanks. I was just wondering if Comrade perhaps could clarify the timeline of what exactly happened with respect to Georgia, because Putin mentioned there in the Munich speech that Russia had withdrawn from Georgia. But then I believe that, you know, George W. Bush administration indicated that they wanted Georgia to join NATO and then uh, Russia did invade Georgia after that. Or am I getting that backwards? Uh, any clarification would be appreciated. Thanks. Yeah, you are totally right. Uh, what you, the video of Putin that you saw was in 2007, the invasion of the very short war uh, between Russia and Georgia was in 2008. And if you remember McCain, remember McCain, the neocon? Okay, and uh, he was big time for supporting uh, Georgia against Russia. That was really the beginning of the neocons against Russia in America, you know, that time, if you remember. All right. Thank you, comrades. And I hope that that answered your question. It's important to note, comrades, that not only are is this an anti-imperialist conflict, but communists are directly participating in this. Um, there's two main, there's units across um, it, across the Donbass People's Militia and even across the Russian army that have intense communist presence with them. Within the Donbass militia specifically, um, there's the Vostok Battalion, which has a very strong communist presence in the Prijark, and there's also a unit called the Prijark Brigade, which is run by communists. And there's international volunteers from Spain, Brazil, France, all over the world, even America. Russell Bentley is in the Donbass right now, and he's involved with the Essence of Time Movement, which has people within the Vostok Brigade. So communists internationally are involved in the people's resistance in Donbass against the Ukrainian fascists. And furthermore, the reason why Poroshenko, when he declared the anti-terrorist operation against the people in the Donbass, the reason why they didn't declare war 
is because according to the IMF, a country cannot be at war if it is to receive loans. And Ukraine is beholden to the IMF and international banking institutions. Thank you for that, comrade. And funny enough, this actually uh, tips off of what comrade was also saying. The material cost for the war itself, as in the uh, economic reasons, is uh, relates to the reason why the Nord Stream pipeline was blown up. Russia, as uh, the Westerners would joke, was at the gas station of Europe. It, quite realistically, it was a very cheap source of energy. The Nord Stream pipeline brought natural gas to Germany for in such a cheap, predictable way without fluctuating price points that the Germans could also sell it to other European nations and make a profit off it as well. However, America wanted to sell Europe liquid natural gas. Problem with that is, is that it's expensive, has to be shipped by boat, and fluctuates in price. So obviously Europe would not economically want that. And so with that in mind, Ukraine in 2014 was about to tighten its relationship. President Yanukovych faced the problem with the choice between taking a $17 billion high-interest IMF loan that came with strings attached, anti-labor measures, austerity, deregulation, and imperial looting of natural resources, the usual, or a Russian aid package that was $15 billion, lower interest, and came with cheap energy deals. Yanukovych obviously chose the economically smart plan that the Russians offered, and as you can probably figure out, that gave the Americans a pretty much a really de-jure reason to coup him uh, Jan Sankyuk into power. And from there, we see history continue on with the Nazis gaining power. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, I'll just preface this by saying like I'm new here. I have, this is my first time being here, so I haven't really had a chance to like experience classes. I'm excited. I can't say the full time today because I have to work, but I was checking out the beginning of the class because I'm very interested. Um, I guess uh, I, my big question is, uh, well, kind of like a question and a comment is about the like the the concept of like ukraine being fascist and maybe this is coming from a perspective more ba baked in like philosophy of or the, the uh, philosophy of like political science like political philosophy because i've done a lot of like research into eastern european like fascism and neo-fascism because in my mind uh like russia is more like if anything in this instance the like fascist aggressor like because obviously ukraine's got plenty of issues and it's you know there's things to be said there but in my mind it's not necessarily ukraine as the fascist state it's russia especially with like putin's in, or putin being so heavily influenced by the philosopher ivan Ilyin and stuff like that so i'm just curious like where what, more about this take because it's not something i've heard before all right uh, i can go ahead and give somewhat of an answer to that and i'll go ahead and let uh the other comrades that wanted to answer that uh go ahead and give that their shot as well uh, it really just gets down to, is the state itself fascist? There can be fascist individuals and there can be fascistic influence on individuals like Putin. But when you look at a state like Ukraine and you look at what it objectively is and does, uh, it is a fascist state. Uh, they banned all opposition parties. Uh, they have committed uh, terroristic violence against the people in the Donbass and the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine. Um, I mean, they they have incorporated neo-Nazi glorification and, and actual neo-Nazi battalions into their military, such as the Azov Battalion uh, and the Donbass Battalion. And so if you look at just the state overall of Ukraine objectively, 
uh, it is a fascist state. And, and Russia, on the other hand, uh, sure, there there is definitely fascists in Russia. I mean, there's fascists in every country in the world, um, but it is not a fascist state. It can be described as an imperialist state, but it is anti-Western imperialism. And so that's why a lot of us communists support Russia uh, in this uh, anti-fascist war uh, against Ukraine. And I also want to add, too, that it was the communists in Russia that actually pushed for this invasion and for the denazification of Ukraine for so long. Uh, and Putin finally did that, uh, which, uh, you know, a lot of us think that Putin should have done that eight years ago. But it's been done now. Uh, and that's why it's something that that we support. I'm sure everyone here has some uh, has some great responses. I'll just put uh, if Russia did not invade Ukraine, Russia would have been uh, balkanized in 2014. Uh, this is fully a defensive act. They do not have the prowess of the uh, institutions that were left behind by the Bretton Woods system. If imperialism, if finance capitalism is the herpes simplex two virus, fascism is the molt is the is the thing you get on your lip. That is what Ukraine is. Ukraine is a direct extension of the institutions that uphold finance capital. Uh, they also do mean guy things as well. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, I have concerns. We all have concerns about the direction that um, Putin might take in the future. Uh, because he certainly says, we, he says in his speeches that he's there, they are not going back to the Soviet Union, period. However, what our stance is that as long as NATO and the West is creating a proxy war, and as long as Russia is a victim of imperialism, uh, NATO imperialism, U.S. imperialism, that we have to support them. And yes, it's a proxy war. I, I know what you're probably going to say is possibly what do we got? A pre-Nazi and a pre-Nazi fighting each other? We don't see it that way. But we always go with the current situation. And as everyone has said, good that the communist parties have some influence in Russia. And we have to just deal with the present situation and not try and impose what might happen in the future. That's all. But I understand your concern. All right. And I'm going to go ahead and let Comrade General Secretary Angelo respond, and then we'll get to a couple questions, and then we'll go to the presentation again. Okay, this is a question that's generally in the American public. Why? The Western media that's owned by corporations, they're not owned by individuals. The Western media owned by the corporations have a clear scenario. The Ukraine is democratic. That's their first scenario. And therefore, anybody opposed to a democratic government is already wrong. Let's look at the reality of it. According to the definition of Dimitrov, who was the father of anti-fascism, everybody should have read Dimitrov, he gives the characteristics of a fascist government. It is not, it is not to be authoritarian. That is not part of fascism. So let's clear that up. That's what the American psyche thinks. So therefore, if you're authoritarian on the left and you're authoritarian on the right, you're the same. That's the bourgeois capitalist definition. 
that's not the Marxist definition, and we're a Marxist, uh, the people's for Marxist-Leninist studies. Our definition is based on Georgi Dimitrov, and one has to read his book to know what he's saying. You don't have to agree with it, but you'll have to know what his definition is. And fascism is number one. When you ban the Communist Party, that's number one. Not just opposition parties, the Communist Party, when you ban that. Number two, when you attack the trade union movements, those are the two indications of fascism. Not authoritarianism, not anything else. And therefore the American people who are not used to that, they're used to a definition of fascism as being authoritarian. So it's easy to say that Putin's a fascist, um, Trump is a fascist, um, uh, Zelensky is a fascist. No, they don't, they don't think he's a fascist. But yet he wasn't elected in a real election. They banned the Communist Party, which was the number two party in the country. And this is not my view. This is a fact. And the, the person who asked the question should look at this. What happened to the Party of Regions? The Party of Regions, R-E-G-I-O-N-S, which was the number one party. That was outlawed after 2014. So that's what you have to understand. 2014 changed everything. Before that, we would not classify Ukraine as fascist. But after 2014, things changed. So carrying torchlight parades in the middle of the city every night and uh, putting statues up to fascist leaders is part of fascism. You don't have any of that in Russia right now. What you have is a capitalist country in Russia. It is not a fascist country. That's, so that's the difference. Thank you. All right, thank you, comrades. So um, I don't remember if this was ever, uh, if this was mentioned either in the presentation or even in Putin's speech, but uh, it was, I think it was a uh, president, uh, president H.W. Bush was speaking with Gorbachev and told him, and told him that NATO would not expand, uh, would not expand, uh, what is it, eastward. After uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, because we all kind of saw the writing on the wall, we knew what was going to happen, and Bush made the promise uh, to not expand NATO eastward. Uh, of course, this was never written down, which uh, came to NATO's uh, NATO's benefit, because after the Warsaw Pact fell, after the Soviet Union fell, guess what they did? They brought in uh, they brought in Poland and Hungary, I think, next former Warsaw Pact uh, nations. And despite the fact that NATO was obviously an anti-Soviet alliance, it stuck around after the Cold War. Uh, and Putin made that uh, point, for what reason? Why is it still here? Why is it expanding eastward still? Like, who is this? Who is it aggressing towards? Now, NATO never made this their official, uh, their official position, but it's obvious what NATO was from the very beginning. And several times, not just the Soviet Union, but Russia, but Putin's Russia today has challenged uh, NATO on their neutral position on Russia. And NATO, time and time again, has proved that it's an anti-Russian alliance. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, in Russia, they've actually banned uh, an outlaw uh, like Duggan's party, the National Bolshevik Party, and several uh, national socialists and um, Nazi fascist formations and like monarchist fascist 
uh, parties uh, have been banned and there's no fascist in the government uh, of Russia, but in Ukraine, there's blatant fascists in the government and all aspects of life. I mean, why is Bandera, if they're not fascist, then why is Bandera an official holiday, a slaughterer of Jews and Poles and ethnic Russians? Um, how could they honor somebody like that if they're not a fascist uh, state uh, definition? All right, thank you, comrade. So William Z. Foster, in 1948, wrote a book called The Twilight of World Capitalism. And I'm going to read just one paragraph from it. And he talks about the decay of world capitalism, which we're experiencing today. He says, finally, there are capitalist supporters who believe that world capitalism will escape destruction by the powerful United States taking hold of the whole ramshackle capitalist structure and reorganizing it into its own American image. But this too is just a dream of desperate exploiters, driven to the wall by the iron logic of world economic and political evolution. The only possible shape such an attempt an international capitalist reorganization by the United States could take would be the erection of a great American fascist world empire with industrialization concentrated chiefly in the United States and with the rest of the world subordinate to the will of America's big capitalists. But the attempt to put such a fantastic proposition into effect could only be provocative of worldwide economic dislocations, fierce resistance of the many peoples against being subjugated, and a whole new round of wars and revolutions. The general result would be to speed up the present tempo of the breakdown of the capitalist system and the oncoming of world socialism. I think Foster is basically describing the very situation that we're experiencing today. And they're absolutely right in that industrialization, or at least the attempt to concentrate it within the United States is true. We see that two minutes in the talk of bringing business back to America. That's the aim of it. And we also see that in the resistance of the third world and through Russia against the encroachment of the U.S. control over those areas of the world. And our party, which has visited uh, other parts of, of the world, such as in Africa, the reception of our perception of Russia is one of resistance against the U.S. People are overjoyed that Russia decided to stand up against the U.S. And this is the very situation that Foster is describing. All right. Thank you, comrade. We'll go ahead and jump back to the presentation now. The hands that are up, go ahead and keep them up and we'll get back to them. February 11th, 2022. Ukraine invokes provision three of the Vienna Agreement requesting explanation from Russia for military activities. U.S. warns that a Russian invasion could occur on the 16th and warned Americans to leave Ukraine. February 21st, 2022, so it's a year ago today, Russia recognizes the independence of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics and orders troops to be sent into the two republics. February 24th, 2022, at 4 a.m. Moscow time, Putin announced the special military operation in Ukraine 
with the expressed purpose of the denazification of Ukraine and also demilitarization of Ukraine. In this мы видим, что те силы, которые в 2014 году совершили на Украине госпереворот, захватили власть и удерживают ее с помощью, по сути, декоративных выборных процедур, окончательно отказались от мирного урегулирования конфликта. Восемь лет, бесконечно долгих восемь лет, мы делали все возможное, чтобы ситуация была разрешена мирными политическими средствами. Все напрасно. Как уже говорил в своем предыдущем обращении, нельзя без сострадания смотреть на то, что там происходит. Терпеть все это было уже просто невозможно. Необходимо было немедленно прекратить этот кошмар, геноцид в отношении проживающих там миллионов людей, которые надеются только на Россию, надеются только на нас с вами. Именно эти устремления... Чувства, боль людей и были для нас главным мотивом принятия решения о признании народных республик Донбасса. Что считаю важным дополнительно подчеркнуть. Ведущие страны НАТО для достижения своих собственных целей во всем поддерживают на Украине крайних националистов и неонацистов, которые в свою очередь никогда не простят крымчанам и севастопольцам их свободный выбор воссоединения с Россией. Они, конечно же, полезут и в Крым, причем так же, как и на Донбасс, с войной. С тем, чтобы убивать, как убивали беззащитных людей, карателей из банк украинских националистов, пособников Гитлера во время Великой Отечественной войны. Откровенно заявляют они о том, что претендуют на целый ряд других российских территорий. Весь ход развития событий и анализ поступающей информации показывает, что столкновение России с этими силами неизбежно. Это только вопрос времени. Они готовятся, они ждут удобного часа. Теперь претендуют еще и на обладание ядерным оружием. Мы не позволим им этого сделать. Как уже говорил ранее, Россия после развала СССР приняла новые геополитические реалии. Мы с уважением относимся и будем также относиться ко всем вновь образованным на постсоветском пространстве странам. Мы уважаем и будем уважать их суверенитет. И пример тому, помощь, которую мы оказали Казахстану, который столкнулся с трагическими событиями, с вызовом своей государственности и целостности. Но Россия не может чувствовать себя в безопасности, развиваться, существовать с постоянной угрозой, исходящей с территории современной Украины. Напомню, что в 2000-2005 годах мы дали военный отпор террористам на Кавказе, отстояли целостность нашего государства, сохранили Россию. В 2014 году поддержали крымчан и севастопольцев. В 2015 применили вооруженные силы, чтобы поставить надежный заслон проникновению террористов из Сирии в Россию. Другого способа защитить себя у нас не было. То же самое происходит и сейчас. Нам с вами просто не оставили ни одной другой возможности защитить Россию, наших людей, кроме той, которую мы вынуждены будем использовать сегодня. Обстоятельства требуют от нас решительных и незамедлительных действий. 
Народные республики Донбасса обратились к России с просьбой о помощи. В связи с этим, в соответствии со статьей 51 части 7 Устава ООН, санкции Совета Федерации России и во исполнение ратифицированных Федеральным собранием 22 февраля сего года договоров о дружбе и взаимопомощи с Донецкой Народной Республикой и Луганской Народной Республикой. Мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. Ее цель – защита людей, которые на протяжении 8 лет подвергаются издевательствам, геноциду со стороны киевского режима. И для этого мы будем стремиться к демилитаризации и денацификации Украины, а также приданию суду тех, кто совершил многочисленные кровавые преступления против мирных жителей, в том числе и граждан Российской Федерации. February 24th, 2022, shortly after the announcement, missiles hit Kiev, Kharkov, Odessa, and the Donbass. Russian troops invaded via Belarus, Crimea, the Black Sea, and near Kharkov. The Battle of uh, Antonov Airport begins and is won by Russia the following day. That's close to um, Kiev, I think. That it Oh no, close to the border, my bad. February 25th, 2022 to March 29th. The battles rage on the Northern and Southeastern front. Accusations are lobbed at Russia of using cluster, vacuum and phosphorus bombings. NATO and US rejects Ukraine's call for a no-fly zone. March 29th to April 7th, 2022, Russia and Ukraine have in person negotiation in Istanbul, Turkey. The Russian Ministry of Defense then announces a reduction of military activity on the Kiev and Chernihiv front. And by April 7th, the redeployment to southeastern Ukraine was underway. Russia is accused of committing mass a massacre in Bucha. However, the evidence was not there. And Russia accuses Ukraine of committing a false flag attack and staging the massacre. The second stage, April to September, NATO aligned countries sent hundreds of artillery and weapons to Ukraine from April on. This includes former Warsaw Pact weaponry and a bit of Western weapons as well, such as a Stinger missiles, you know, the one from uh, salt to air, right? They were used in Afghanistan a lot. Battles are fought in Southern and South in southern and southeast Ukraine, in the Donbass region and near Odessa, as well as in the Black Sea, where the Russian cruiser Moskva was sunk by Ukrainian forces. Russia occupies Kherson. September 9th, 2022, Ukraine launches a counteroffensive in the Kharkov Oblast. Oblast means like a county, you know which uh, pushes Russia back to the banks of the Oskol River. September 23rd, 20, 
23rd, yeah, to 27th, 2022. The referendum in four Ukrainian oblasts of, from the north to the south and from the um, east to the west. It's Lugansk, Donetsk, and then from east to west is Zaporizhia and Kherson, about joining the Russian Federation, to which all four vote in favor. All right, we'll stop there for our, our second round of questions and comments. Um, yes, I would like to mention a documentary series that I'd watched that really changed my mind about how this was all playing out. And I, I watched this back in February because in February I was like pretty much like most people were at the time. I was like, well, isn't Russia doing a bad thing? You know, but then there's this documentary series on YouTube called uh, Roses Have Thorns by Watchdog Media. And it is a fairly comprehensive documentary series that lays it all out. And after that series, you see what happened. You see what happened in Odessa, Ukraine, where they burned the people alive in the trade union building there. And you see what happened throughout those regions. And, you know, there was this talk in the media, in the Western media earlier this year of people getting out in front of Russian tanks. Well, that same thing happened with Ukraine back in 2014 when Ukraine started pushing into the Donbass. There were people there that were getting out in front of tanks, not even armed. And they were, it was because Ukraine was sending tanks into the Donbass region. 90 seconds. And at that point, it's clear who the true aggressor was and has been for this whole time. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yes. Um, I have a question about the Minsk agreements and uh, Belarus's uh, role in shaping them. Um, from what I understand, Belarus was kind of acting as the mediator, but I believe Zelensky himself um he never wanted to agree to anything from, from the way in which I understand it during the, the talks in Minsk. And um, what exactly is was mapped out during that time in those, what was the agreement? Does anybody know an answer? Because it seems like now Belarus is kind of um, on the side of Russia and said that they'll join in the war on the side of Russia if they're attacked by Ukraine. Okay, uh, Belarus was the location for talks. It's not that Belarus was on the side of Ukraine or was neutral. It was always on the side of Russia. It was just offered the side for talks. And yes, at the beginning, they could have made some kind of a deal. Now keep in mind that in December 17th, uh, Lavrov and Putin made a draft treaty and they proposed it to the NATO, US, EU, and the treaty was to inscribe um, Ukraine's neutrality, black on white, that it would never ever join NATO, okay? And of course it was rejected. So it's possibly that in April, I'm not 100% sure, but that they might have agreed to it, you know, and put it on black on white in their constitution. But then remember this, 
uh, Boris Johnson, as soon as the talks happened, he flew to Kiev to meet Zelensky. And he told him, hey, 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 no talks, no man, come on, no talks, we need to fight. And that's what happened. I just wanted to make a couple comments on Belarus as well. Um, Belarus has like a union state with Russia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they work together economically, militarily, and things like this. Belarus was actually, uh, Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, was actually the only Soviet leader who voted to remain the USSR. So this shows, you know, historically. And one last thing I wanted to bring up is the history of United States-backed uh, regimes across the world. You know, Ukraine is just going to be a problem in Eastern Europe for decades to come because we know as the United States comes in, leaves weapons, leaves training and all of these, these folks go to other countries and commit terrorist attacks. You know, this is exactly what happened in Afghanistan when the U.S. administration helped them against the Soviets. And it's the same thing that's going to happen in Ukraine. That's all. Thank you, comrade. And it's worth noting that recently uh, there were Ukrainian soldiers that were caught with ISIS patches on their shoulders. And when you think about the relationship that Russia has with Syria and the Assad, Assad government and who has been fighting the Assad government in Syria, it's not very hard to connect those dots there. Uh, and, and, you know, when you think about Ukraine and all the military aid that they've got that has gone into their black market, kind of reminds you of the similar events that happened in the Middle East. Uh, when we gave military aid to states like Saudi Arabia, Israel, UAE, etc. So thank you, comrade. Uh, comrade Angelo from New York, you have the floor. I suggest you uh, start listening to a guy by the name of Scott Ritter. He's not a communist. Everybody should know that. He was an American operative involved with checking weapons of mass destruction uh, with a certain agency in the United States government. And he saw the lies that Colin Powell said at the United Nations. He's now going around the country. I'm wondering how his life is gonna be protected, uh, talking about what is going on in the Ukraine. Now, this is a guy we should be listening to. Uh, everybody who thinks that only the communists are involved in this. Here's a guy who's not a communist. And he looks at it from the perspective of the United States interests, but not imperialist interests. And there's a difference. There's a difference. And he claims that they are now using germ warfare, the Ukrainians, and that the West is Western media is covering this up. I sort of am really in, began listening to this guy. Uh, very interesting what he's saying. What is going on there is an attempt to form World War III. That's what's going on. And it's gonna develop into that. It's those of us my age, I'm 76 uh, in two months, went through the Cuban Missile Crisis and I, when I was 13 years old. And we were very close to nuclear destruction. The same thing is going on right now. This is something that we have to be careful of. We do not poke the bear. Do not do that. The poke the bear can develop into something. So we're Two not minutes. talking about nuclear weapons. So I suggest you listen to Scott Ritter, very interesting 
on this issue of the Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Um, thank you. I know it had been mentioned earlier that there were independence referendums also in um, the four areas. Uh, my question was, was there any other areas I had heard maybe the area consisting of Odessa had also voted or was that not correct? Thank you. Now, Odessa did not have a referendum, but I tell you what, in uh, May 2014, if there had been a referendum, for sure, Odessa would have been against the Kiev regime. Odessa is red ever since 1905. I mean, you know, not necessarily communist, but for sure anti-Nazi. During World War II, Odessa was a hero city of the USSR, okay? They resisted the uh, encirclement, the siege, you know, for many months. And even after it was taken, they still fought underground in the catacombs in Odessa. So yeah, Odessa is ours. And uh, we cannot wait until it's liberated, honestly. All right, thank you, comrade. I've heard the different things since the start of the war, like uh, some, remember some people saying that, uh, claiming that Russia will be defeated easily by Ukraine and saying, and therefore that they're doing pretty well. And others saying that Russia should have overwhelmed Ukraine uh, very easily and that they haven't done so shows how weak they are. Uh, what do you think about that? Are they doing very badly or better than expected in the war so far? Well, it could have been better to be honest if um, on February 24th of last year, if Putin had gone harder with more troops, you know, like three to one instead of one to three, you know what I mean? Uh, it might have been better, but he, he thought he thought that Ukraine would fold like Crimea did eight years before, and sure he made a mistake, you know. And look, Russia is fighting thirty countries, thirty, and it's getting aid from military aid from fifty countries in the world. Okay, so it's very unequal fight. So we'll see. All right, thank you, comrade. And I wanna just add to that as well, that I think one of the things that we're gonna see in the coming months is the need for the other anti-imperialist countries of the world to chip in and do their part. Um, if, it's, if it's a war to stop Nazism in the world again, if, it's, if, if we're looking at a possible World War III where the main aggressor is Western imperialism, then frankly, the world needs to get their shit together when it comes to being against Western imperialism and fighting it. Um, if Russia fails in Ukraine, uh, which I don't think will happen, but if they do, uh, that has consequences for every country on the planet. That has consequences for China, Cuba, DPRK, India, France, United States, Antarctica. It has consequences for all of us if that happens. And so I really think that we're gonna see that need for the actual forces of the world that are against Western imperialism to really unite, not just stay on the sidelines. Yes, I wanna to add to that. If we want to prevent, if World War Three has to be prevented, what would stop it would be a mutual assistance treaty between Russia, 
China, DPRK, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba. And then you know what? NATO US is going to think twice. Hi, comrades. I just want to um, just make a quick point, I guess, in terms of the Minsk agreement from uh, Belarus. Angela Merkel, I don't know if it was a mistake or if it was just um, a Freudian slip or some kind, but um, she mentioned very recently that it was always the goal for NATO and the EU to um, sign the Minsk agreements, um, cease hostilities in, in Ukraine to, um, to build up the Ukrainian army in order to, uh, to, to invade the Donbass and then to Russia. And that's all. Yeah, that's correct. And you know, the ex-president of France, his name was Hollande. And uh, just like Merkel, he admitted what you just said that it was a scam, it was a ruse, you know, to gain time and build Ukrainian army. You know what, in 2014, Russia would have taken Kiev like you take a baby's milk, okay? But eight years later, different ball game. All right, thank you. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna say on the military situation, as far as how Russia's doing, uh, there was a recent, there's a think tank, you know, one of our capitalist think tank CSIS and they released a document called the International Security Program and they basically they have a chart in there that shows that essentially Russia is demilitarizing all of NATO. Uh, we don't have the production of weapons. We don't have anything like that. And they're looking at we can't like we're depleting our stocks of weapons like our emergency stocks of weapons. So I think Russia is just waiting for an appropriate time and for their mobilization effort to really strike. And then I think we're going to see a big difference. Thanks. Thank you, comrade. And that's true. One of the things that I've started to notice, especially when it comes to inside the U.S. empire, is even the U.S. imperialists have started to get hesitant when it comes to sending more stuff to Ukraine because they're sitting there going, where is all of this going? I thought that they're supposed to be winning a war and we're depleting what we have, even though we have a couple trillion dollar military budget, you know, out of our annual uh, budget, it's still something that is really draining us. Uh, yeah, um, two things. Why are they calling the Russians orcs? And also, I heard that they had promised the, I don't know if it was the Azov guys or someone in the Ukraine military uh, land, for conquering the Donbass, and it was modeled on the Native American genocide. And I'm just wondering if anybody knew anything about that. Thanks. Yeah. So the reason why they call them orcs is because Russia is not a nation state. Russia is a civilization state. It is of the Eurasian peoples, Asian, Russian, Tartar, it has Kazakhs, it has Dagestanis, it has Kalmyks, it has Cossacks. It is not simply a Western nation state such as Germany, France, um, or any of the other the, uh, of these countries that were brought about by liberal nationalist democratic revolutions in the 19th century. Ukraine, or the Western Ukrainians, see themselves as wanting to become more Western. They want to become more European. Ask them what, seriously, ask these Europeans, Ask even ask Americans when they say, oh, we should be more like Europe. What do they mean by that? They mean that they want to be more European in terms of, you know, having a single nation state. And what Ukraine, the national identity that, that they're trying to build in Ukraine right now 
is based off of Stefan Bandera. It's based off the rejection of Russian civilization. Um, and Russian civilization, the only reason why it exists, frankly, um, is because of the Soviet Union. Without the Soviet Union, Russia would still be led by Germans. And I'm not talking about Nazis. I'm talking about the German monarchy that was imposed on Russia, um, known as the Romanov dynasty. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah, and I would just to add to what was saying, um, I think specifically what I've come across as far as the orc connotation is they consider the more eastern parts, they were defeated by basically the Mongols. And so their blood is tainted by Mongol blood and therefore they are orcs. So it is sort of a racialized aspect. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, you know, me and my contradictions. So I don't know about all the engagements or the wars, but this is the second big one where the people have asked Russia to come in. Again, a lot of comrades here know this already, but in Afghanistan, Russia was asked to come in. They didn't invade. And again, in the Donbass, they were asked to come in. And I just need to make sure that it's out in the in the infosphere or wherever, because it's, it's starting to get real annoying. Thank you. Yeah, and another thing that I think is important to point out, and uh, Putin made this very clear when he made the announcement, and we saw this, that the invasion of Ukraine was in line with the UN Charter. Uh, it was in line with the laws and rules when it comes to that. Um, and so when you hear you know, a lot of these uh, liberals or ultra leftists out there that go, oh, it was an illegal, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. No, it was not. It was provoked. It was legal. Uh, it was necessary. And so that's one thing that we should always remind people when we're talking about this. So about the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk and uh, what what other two uh, republics voted? Zaporizhia and Kherson. Right. When when that happened, uh, I saw the election results supposedly, and it was like ninety nine percent in favor of uh, of joining Russia, and I'm not sure how much I believe that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I do. I mean, I do believe that the um, <clears throat> that the eastern side of Ukraine uh, is more uh, is more uh, <clears throat> attached, I guess, to Russia. So it it wouldn't surprise me if they would uh, vote in favor of uh, joining Russia. But I'm not sure how much I believe. Ninety nine percent. If anybody has any uh, any other uh, answers to that, I would, I would appreciate that. Comrade, it was not quite 99%. It was, I believe, like 80% or 78%. There was a percentage, especially in Kherson, maybe Zaporizhia, where it was, uh, there was people that didn't want to. But it is historically Russian lands. They called it Nova Russia. It was um, um, Russian since Catherine uh, the Great or Catherine II, you know, in the 18th century or 19th century, sorry. <laughs> All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, looks like a couple of other comrades want to respond to that. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to add that this was not the first referendum, at least in Donetsk and Lugansk. In 2014, they also voted to join Russia as Novo Russia, and they were denied by Putin. So uh, there, were, there is a long history of them trying to rejoin with Russia. This is not the first it was not the first attempt. Thank you, comrade. And I just want to read. I searched up the. Uh, 
election results from those uh, referendums. It says the ballot count showed 87% of voters supported joining Russia in the Kherson region, 93% in the Zaporizhia region, 99% in the Donetsk region, and 98% in the Lugansk region in the east. Um, so there's the numbers there. And we also need to remember as well that the sentiments and the feelings of people that are going through this kind of brutal war for eight years can lead them to really, really support uh, something like being part of Russia or being independent. And so that's what we need to understand when we look at those election totals. We're used to being in the United States where when we have an election, it's usually between two bourgeois politicians that are the same piece of shit. And so it ends up being 50-50, 60-40, that sort of thing. Uh, whereas this is a little bit different. And so you're going to see a different result. Yeah, I just wanted to add some more context here. So in 2014, before they even declared the DPR and LPR, their original goal was to rejoin with Russia. That was before they decided to uh, announce the DPR and LPR. And then I also wanted to point out, too, that like, you know, this is the bidding of NATO, because since 1991, there's been several brother wars of neighboring states, Armenia, Azerbaijan, you know, um, Russia, Georgia. You know, there's been a couple and then now Ukraine, Russia. So this is not something that this is there was several dry runs before this. And now this is the big one. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you, comrade. I'll go ahead and take uh, two more hands and then we need to jump back to the presentation. Uh, comrade Angelo from New York, you have the floor. Yeah, I want to make sure that everybody understands this. In every election, in any country, any society, it's the people that vote that has taken their, their, their uh, vote is taken into consideration. If you boycott an election, if you do not take part in an election, then you're going to make the other side higher. Just remember that as tactics. That's just logical. If the majority of people in an area, for whatever reason, did not want to vote in that election, it's gonna have a difference in the outcome. So yes, I believe 99% in an area can easily happen in any area. If you have a large number of people who boycott an election and don't vote on it, the other side is gonna come out higher. Just remember that, thank you. Thank you, comrade. Um, another one of those like brotherhood wars, whatever, like the post-socialist um, wars, the Yugoslav Wars, where multiple, basically the U.S. balkanized Yugoslavia by um, supporting separatists in the separate republics, and then they'd like demonize the Serbians like they're currently demonizing the Russians, and also like make the Serbian atrocities seem more extreme, whereas the um, not even mention the ones, the people that they support while imposing like colonial governments. And, um, and also they'd, they had this one like treaty thing where basically like Serbia has to sort of still Yugoslavia, just Serbia and Montenegro, that they basically had a treaty where they're like, um, you have to sign this that says you're basically under our colonial rule or else we're going to bomb you a lot. <laughs> and yeah. All right. Thank you, comrade. We're going to go ahead and jump back to the presentation now, and we might go just a hair over time. 
uh, but that's okay. And this is also going to be split up into two classes just because creating a timeline for this whole year while including what we're about to read from Seymour Hirsch uh, was a lot. And so to get through all of it well and understand it well, we're going to have two classes on this. The time uh, is 9, 12 p.m. So this is the U.S. sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Okay. The declarations of intent. Multiple U.S. politicians had made statements over the last year and before of the Nord Stream 2 needing to be stopped in the event of a war with Russia. This is Biden on uh, February 7th, 2022. Well, I'll take a, uh, Reuters, and, uh, Andrea. I think this is correct. Yeah, the first question. Thank you, Mr. President, and uh, thank you, Chancellor Schultz. Um, Mr. President, I have wanted to ask you about this um, Nord Stream project that you've long opposed. You didn't mention it just now by name, nor did Chancellor Schultz. Did you receive assurances from Chancellor Schultz today that Germany will, in fact, pull the plug on this project uh, if Russia invades Ukraine? And did you discuss what the definition of invasion could be? And then Chancellor Scholz, when I ask you, if I may ask you, Chancellor Scholz, you said there was some strategic ambiguity that was needed in terms of sanctions. I just wanted to know whether the sanctions you are envisaging and the EU is working on and the US as well are already finished, finalized, or is there still work ongoing? And you're not really saying what the details are. Is that just an excuse for Germany maybe to not support the SWIFT measures? Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there will be, uh, we, there will be no longer Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Thank you very much for your question. I want to be absolutely clear. We have intensively prepared everything to be ready with the necessary sanctions if there is a, a military aggression against Ukraine. All right, slide. Uh, just okay. for the sake of time, this is, uh, I just want to say that this is Victoria Newland being questioned uh, in a hearing by the GOP Senator Ron Johnson on December 7th, 2021 about stopping Nord Stream 2. So we're gonna to listen to this as well. Um, I can't think of a, a more powerful way to punish uh, Russian aggression than by rolling back what progress has been made and if at all possible, uh, prevent the Nord Stream 2 from ever being completed. Uh, is that something that is being discussed with allies? Is that something that's being contemplated? Absolutely. And as, if, as you recall from the July U.S.-German statement, that was very much uh, in that statement that if that any moves Russian aggression against Ukraine uh, would have a direct impact on the pipeline. And that is our expectation and the conversation that we're having. 
So again, direct impact is one thing, but I'm, I'm literally talking about rolling back the, the, the pipeline. And it, it, loosely define that, but I mean taking action that will prevent it from ever becoming operational. I think if President Putin moves on Ukraine, our expectation is that the pipeline will be suspended. Well, I certainly hope uh, that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee would take up uh, legislation to go beyond just suspending it, but from ending it permanently. But anyway, thank you, uh, Undersecretary Newland. Um, All right. Samuel Hurst, you know, he's a famous journalist, you know, since 1969. He exposed the My La massacre in Vietnam in 1969. In the 70s, he covered Watergate and uh, the U.S. secret bombings of Cambodia in 2004. He detailed abuses of prisoners at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq in 2013. He disputed claims of the Assad government being responsible for the Ghouta chemical attack. In 2015, he reported the U.S. and Pakistan who lied about the events surrounding the killing of Osama bin Laden. All right, thank you, comrade. I'm gonna go ahead and read uh, from the article that uh, Seymour Hirsch put out, uh, and we've republished this as well on the Daily Worker USA website, uh, but this is just from his Substack. Let me go ahead and read it. Last June, the Navy divers operating under the cover of a widely publicized midsummer NATO exercise known as Bolt Ops 22, planted the remotely triggered explosives that three months later destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines, according to a source with direct knowledge of the operational planning. Two of the pipelines, which were co known collectively as the Nord Stream 1, had been providing Germany and much of Western Europe with cheap Russian natural gas for more than a decade. A second pair of pipelines, called Nord Stream 2, had been built but were not yet operational. Now, with Russian troops massing on, Ukraine, on the Ukrainian border and the bloodiest war in Europe since 1945 looming, President Joseph Biden saw the pipelines as a vehicle for Vladimir Putin to weaponize natural gas for his political and territorial ambitions. Asked for a comment, Adrian Watson, a White House spokesperson said in an email, this is false and completely fiction. Tammy Thorpe, a spokesperson for the Central Intelligence Agency, similarly wrote, this claim is completely and utterly false. Biden's decision to sabotage the pipelines came after more than nine months of highly secret back and forth debate inside Washington's national security community about how to best achieve that goal. For much of the time, the issue was not whether to do the mission, but how to get it done with no overt clue as to who was responsible. There was a vital bureaucratic reason for relying on the graduates of the center's hardcore diving school in Panama City. The divers were Navy only and not members of America's Special Operations Command, whose covert operations must be reported to Congress and briefed in advance to the Senate and House leadership, the so-called Gang of Eight. The Biden administration was doing everything possible to avoid leaks as the planning took place late in 2021 and into the first months 
of 2022. Several of those involved in planning the pipeline mission were dismayed by what they viewed as indirect references to the attack. Quote, it was like putting an atomic bomb on the ground in Tokyo and telling the Japanese that we are going to detonate it, the source said. The plan was for the options to be executed post-invasion and not advertised publicly. Biden simply didn't get it or ignored it. Biden's and Newland's indiscretion, if that is what it was, might have frustrated some of the planners, but it also created an opportunity. According to the source, some of the senior officials of the CIA determined that blowing up the pipeline, quote, no longer could be considered a covert option because the president just announced that we knew how to do it. The plan to blow up Nord Stream 1 and 2 was suddenly downgraded from a covert operation requiring that Congress be informed to one that was deemed as a highly classified intelligence operation with U.S. military support. Under the law, the source explained, quote, there was no longer a legal requirement to report the operation to Congress. All they had to do now is just do it, but it still had to be secret. The Russians have superlative surveillance of the Baltic Sea, end quote. The agency work group members had no direct contact with the White House and were eager to find out if the president meant what he'd said, that is, if the mission was now a go. The source recalled, Bill Burns comes back and says, do it. The operation. Norway was the perfect place to base this mission. In the past few years of the East-West crisis, the U.S. military has vastly expanded its presence inside Norway, whose western border runs 1,400 miles along the North Atlantic Ocean and merges above the Arctic Circle with Russia. The Pentagon has created high-paying jobs and contracts amid some local controversy by investing hundreds of millions of dollars to upgrade and expand American Navy and Air Force facilities in Norway. The new works included, most importantly, an advanced synthetic aperture radar far up north that was capable of penetrating deep into Russia and came online just as the American intelligence community lost access to a series of long-range listening sites inside China. A newly refurbished American submarine base, which had been under construction for years, had become operational, and more American submarines were now able to work closely with their Norwegian colleagues to monitor and spy on a major Russian nuclear redoubt 250 miles to the east on the Kola Peninsula. America also has vastly expanded a Norwegian airbase in the north and delivered to the Norwegian Air Force a fleet of Boeing-built P-8 Poseidon patrol planes to bolster its long-range spying on all things Russia. In return, the Norwegian government angered liberals and some moderates in its parliament last November by passing the Supplementary Defense Cooperation Agreement, SDCA. Under the New Deal, the U.S. legal system would have jurisdiction in certain agreed areas in the North over American soldiers accused of crimes off base, as well as those Norwegian citizens accused or suspected of interfering with the work at the base. Back in Washington, planners knew they had to go to Norway. Quote, they hated the Russians, and the Norwegian Navy was full of superb sailors and divers 
who had generations of experience in highly profitable deep sea oil and gas exploration, the source said. They also could be trusted to keep the mission secret. The Norwegians may have had other interests as well. The destruction of Nord Stream, if the Americans could pull it off, would allow Norway to sell vastly more of its own natural gas to Europe. Sometime in March, a few members of the team flew to Norway to meet with the Norwegian Secret Service and Navy. One of the key questions was where exactly in the Baltic Sea was the best place to plant the explosives. Nord Stream 1 and 2, each with two sets of pipelines, were separated much of the way by little more than a mile as they made their run to the port of Griefswald and far northeast of Germany. The Norwegian Navy was quick to find the right spot and the shallow waters of the Baltic Sea a few miles off Denmark's Bornholm Island. The pipelines ran more than a mile apart along a seafloor that was only 260 feet deep. That would be well within the range of the divers who operating from a Norwegian Alta class mine hunter would dive with a mixture of oxygen, nitrogen and helium streaming from their tanks and plant shaped C4 charges on the four pipelines with concrete protective covers. It would be tedious, time-consuming, and dangerous work, but the waters off Bornholm had another advantage. There were no major tidal currents, which would have made the task of diving much more difficult. The Norwegians also had a solution to the crucial question of when the operation should take place. Every June for the past 21 years, the American Sixth Fleet, whose flagship is based in Gaeta, Italy, south of Rome, has sponsored a major NATO exercise in the Baltic Sea involving scores of allied ships throughout the region. The current exercise held in June would be known as Baltic Operations 2022 or Baltops 2022. The Norwegians proposed this would be the ideal cover to plant the mines. The Americans provided one vital element. They convinced the six fleet planners to add a research and development exercise to the program. The exercise, as made public by the Navy, involved the Sixth Fleet in collaboration with the Navy's research and warfare centers. The at-sea event would be held off the coast of Bornholm Island and involved NATO teams of divers planning mines with competing teams using the latest underwater technology to find and destroy them. It was both a useful exercise and ingenious cover. The Panama City boys would do their thing and the C4 explosives would be in place by the end of Bald Ops 2022 with a 48-hour timer attached. All of the Americans and Norwegians would be long gone by the first explosion. The days were counting down. The clock was ticking and we were nearing mission accomplished, the source said. And then Washington had second thoughts. The bombs would still be planted during Bald Ops, but the White House worried that a two-day window for their detonation would be too close to the end of the exercise and it would be obvious that America had been involved. Instead, the White House had a new request. Can the guys in the field come up with some way to blow the pipe, pi 